How many of you were married on Valentine's Day? Anybody here have a Valentine's Day wedding? Not a soul? He's married. I mean initially, Joyce. Your wedding was on Valentine's Day. How many of you became engaged on Valentine's Day? I see one. Is that all? You guys know what you're doing. How many of you hope to be engaged by next Valentine's Day? <laughs> Is that a fair question to ask? Well, we're going to think about weddings today. Or at least one special wedding. So for those of you who are married, think about your own wedding, if you can remember that long ago. What was it like? How did you feel? Were you nervous? Happy? What? And for those of you who hope to be married someday, imagine what your wedding might be like. Who will be there? Who will, hopefully, be your bride or groom? And you don't have to tell that if you don't want to. You can keep that secret. Now, close your eyes for a moment and imagine with me a wedding. You are in the most beautiful mountain meadow you have ever seen. Soft beneath your feet is a carpet of wild flowers whose colors are so brilliant you can almost feel the reds and yellows and blues, the deep purples and greens. The beauty of the sky, the caress of the breeze. The, the lushness of everything around you is such that you walk without even thinking about walking. Your senses totally overloaded by the beauty before you. You are so caught up in it you seem to float across the meadow. Suddenly, you top a small rise, and there before you is a wide valley even more glorious than the meadow from which you have come. Straight ahead is a lake with water so clear it looks like crystal. Beyond the lake, mountains tower, gleaming white, and then you realize they're not mountains at all, but clouds. You get a little closer, and you see at the base of the cloud mountains Across the crystal clear lake, there is a raised platform area like a large stage. It shimmers deep emerald green in the light. You can't see it's sunlight because it seems to come from everywhere. You come closer and almost can't catch your breath. The green is not just emerald like it is an emerald. One solid gemstone. Stretching for hundreds of yards from the lake to the cloud mountains. 
you can actually see into the depths of the gem and watch its brilliance bounce back and forth within the crystalline structure. By now, you are almost to the lake and you wonder how you will cross when certainly, suddenly on the surface of the crystal clear water there appears a bridge unlike any other bridge you've ever seen. It looks like a ribbon of pure gold, polished, stretched across the water to the other side. It is so much a part of the lake, at first you think it's just light reflecting from the water. But as you get closer, you can see that the golden surface does not ripple as the water does. Tentatively, you test it. It's solid, so you start across. A few steps out onto the golden bridge, you glance down at the water and stop, stock still. Looking back at you from the crystal mirror water is a beautiful bride clothed in glistening white. You look at the bride's face, and one second it's your own, and the next it's your dear Christian grandmother's. Then the image seems to break into a billion tiny pieces so that every little ripple in the lake reflects a different face. White and black, oriental and European, young and old, male and female. Yet each seems somehow to stand alone. Dressed like a bride. Then a movement at the end of the bridge catches your attention and you look up to see a man standing there. You know you know him and you know you love him, but you have never seen his face before. That face, it's so strong. His eyes, they probe your very soul. He reaches out to take your hand and your fingers brush a hole left by a nail. Then you hear a voice, but it's more than a voice. It sounds like a great throng of people, but still one voice. It roars and reverberates like a great waterfall rushing headlong into a canyon. It crashes and echoes like thunder. And yet it's one voice and it shouts, Hallelujah! And then, as John wrote in Revelation 19, I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. And so, suddenly aware of the whiteness of your linen dress, your hand in the hand of the Savior, you climb the golden stairs, seven wide steps up to the emerald platform, and now you see at the far end a throne, 
golden, glorious. Gathered around the throne are all those Bible heroes you've read and heard about all your life. There's Moses and David and Jeremiah and Daniel with his fingers entwined in the mane of the most magnificent lion you have ever seen. You don't know how you know who they are, but you know. And there, standing off to the side of the throne, in the place reserved for the best man, there's John, the one they call the Baptist. And you feel the hand of the Lord Jesus in your hand, and you look into the love in his eyes, and the glory on his face, and you ask yourself, am I ready for this? But you continue to walk hand in hand with the Savior and you realize that somehow you don't know how. Though you feel like you're all alone and have the Savior's undivided attention that there are thousands more, all those who have loved his appearing and they're coming, coming from the grave, from the depths of the sea called by Gabriel's trumpet with resurrected bodies. It's the church from all the centuries the bride of Christ, bright and pure, coming to stand before the throne, and you are among them. You're the bride of the king, and you ask yourself, am I ready for this? And you remember that Sunday morning, back home in Indiana, when a gray-bearded old hillbilly preacher talked about the bride of Christ and the need for faithfulness and the depths of God's love for his people. And suddenly you realize that wasn't so long ago. And you wonder if your friends from church are here, if they feel the Savior's strong hand and hear the angel cry, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And you ask yourself, were we ready for this? Folks, that's the question. That is the burning, searing, all-consuming question. Are we ready for that? You see, that's the destiny of the church. That's what we were created for. That's what we were saved for. From the very beginning in Genesis 2, when God created a bride for Adam, to the very end in Revelation 22, where it says, The Spirit and the bride say, Come. From beginning to end, the theme of all God's message, the purpose for everything God ever did, all of it was and is to prepare for Himself a people of his very own, a nation that will be his inheritance forever, a pure and radiant bride that has severed all ties except the love and grace that bind her to her Savior, a bride who left all else behind who will be one with him forever. That's what we were created for. You ever wonder why you were born? You ever think, I just don't have any purpose on this earth? You ever feel like sitting down by the path and having yourself a powerful pity party? Poor me, I'm not worth anything. I'll never amount to anything. I just can't do anything right. I, I might as well quit. I'm so tired. I just can't stand it. Stop it! Stop it! Right now, if you belong to the Lord, you have no reason to feel that way. You're going to marry the king, the only son of the creator of the universe. You're going to be a glorious heavenly bride, the bride of the lamb. So get off your royal duff and start getting ready for the wedding. Think about it. We 
are going to marry the Lamb. The bride has been chosen and is being prepared for the big day. Now, I think to understand all the Bible says about this, we need to start by seeing that our wedding customs are not at all like theirs. Few fellows I know could walk through the halls of Crawfordsville High or Southmont or North or Purdue or IU looking at the girls as they pass say, I'll take that one. Get her name and address and dad will arrange the wedding. You didn't do it that way, did you? But king's sons used to do that. No more. Sometimes these days, the guy doesn't have much say in the matter. He's hooked before he knows what hit him. I remember with great fondness my Uncle John, my dad's older brother, who died a few years ago at just over 100 years old. But my Aunt Lita preceded him in death by about 35 years. And... uh, She was, up until the day she died, one of the happiest, sweetest people you ever met, but you couldn't call her pretty. Not physically anyway, not in appearance. Her beauty was in her marvelous Christian spirit. Aunt Lita was joking one time, teasing about her marriage to Uncle John, and and she grinned and said, John used to say if he had anything to say about it, he was going to marry a beautiful woman. And then she grinned and laughed and says, obviously he didn't have anything to say about it. Well, back in Bible times, it wasn't like it is now. Among the common folk, the parents arranged most of the messages. But the kings and king's sons got to pick. And they could pick anyone they pretty well pleased. You remember the story of Esther in the Old Testament? Esther was a nice Jewish girl, minding her own business, about 500 years or so before Christ. But she did not live in Israel. She lived in Persia, the descendant of Jews who were taken captive to Babylon about 600 or so B.C., 100 years before Esther's time. The story begins when the king of Persia is having a party. And half drunk and all his friends are drunk, he's got a beautiful wife whose name is Vashti, and he calls her in to show her off. She said, I'm not coming. I'm not going to stand out there in front of, stand in front of a bunch of drunks so they can look at me. He gets really, 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 really mad. And so he says, I never want to see her again. Bar her from my presence. I'll never see her again. Well, that's fine till he got lonely. Let's pick up the story in the book of Esther, chapter 2. Later, when the anger of King Xerxes had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her, meaning, I never want to see her again. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful girls into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the girl who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. Thus this advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. And you thought beauty contests were something new. Not really. Esther won the contest, of course. That's why we have the book of Esther in our Bible rather than the book of Tapheth or Hanani or whoever else lost, you know, whatever her name was, or several of them. The result of the story and Esther's unusual courage is why we know about her, and we won't take time to recount that today. 
There's really nothing especially unusual, though, about the king holding such a contest. Kings often did that. They had the right to choose to marry whoever they wanted to. Well, the Lord Jesus has the right to choose too. Whoever he wants to have in heaven with him, that's his privilege. You know, that's really the point of Romans chapter 9. A chapter that is admittedly somewhat confusing. If God wanted to choose the descendants of Abraham and call them his people, he could. But he could also at any time rescind that call and choose someone else and call them his people. That's what Romans 9, 22 to 26 is talking about. What if God, Paul writes, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles? As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, And I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And it will happen that in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. You know the story of Hosea? Do you know the story of Hosea? You ought to go read the book of Hosea. Hosea chose, God chose a bride for Hosea. A bride who certainly was not worthy, hardly lovable, and he urged Hosea to continue to love her even when she became a total slut. Sorry to use that word, but it describes her exactly. She ran away from him several times, sold herself into sexual slavery on the slave market, and he went and bought her back. I mean, that woman was a mess. The book is intended to show the depth of God's love for his people in spite of their unfaithfulness, but We won't get any further into Hosea than that. But God has the right to choose. Jesus, the Son of God, the Lamb, has the right to choose His bride. Whom has He chosen? Prettiest people in the world? If that's the case, I'm out of luck and so are most of you. The tallest? If I stretch, I can get 5'9". I used to be able to get 5'9 without stretching. No luck there either. The best athletes? (laughs) Those are very, very... Whom would the Lord choose? Who's going to be the bride of the... Now, don't get sidetracked by sexual things. There's a whole lot more to being married than the physical expression of love. Our society has contaminated the kind of intimacy that marriage can bring without that and besides that. The bride of the Lamb will be those whom he wants to live with him forever. So who would he choose? You know, Dr. Dobson used to say that in our society, young people tend to think they're not worth much unless they're pretty, rich, smart, or really good at some other sport or some sport or other. That's what our society values. But if God chose on that basis, most of us would be left out. Where would I be? If God chose only the tall, dark, and handsome, you think my one out of three would get me in? (laughs) I ain't tall. I'm not handsome. If I get out in the sun long enough, I'm dark. Yeah, right. Thank God he does not choose that way. 
Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Brothers, beginning at verse 26. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify things that are, so that no one may boast before Him. It is because of Him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Romans 5 says, you see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely would anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus, the King's Son, the Lamb of God, left His palace on the hill to go looking for a bride. He passed by all the rich beauties with their snooty ways. He had no use for the self-assured eggheads who tried to tell him why he should choose them. He rejected those who thought they were already righteous enough. Instead, he went down to the ghetto, found a little girl, dirty, tattered, a real mess. But within her, he saw the potential for unlimited love. So he took her home, had his servants bathe her and dress her in a beautiful white dress, set her at his own table. Then he looked at her with love in his eyes and he said, when you grow up, will you marry me? It wasn't easy for him to rescue her from those who wanted to keep her in the ghetto. To free her, he had to give his own life. But he didn't stay dead. He rose to life again. And now he's waiting till the little girl grows up so that can be married. Those though they can be married. You don't think that's the way it was? Open your Bibles to Ephesians 5. You got your Bibles with you? Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, the General Electric Power Company. friend of mine, a man in church I used to serve, who worked for the phone company, said that's the only way he could remember the order in which those four epistles come as General Electric Power Company, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. But anyway, Ephesians 5. We apply this passage to marriage, and rightly we should. And no doubt today, Valentine's Day across our country, there are hundreds of messages being preached from this passage. Most of them will miss the last, and I think the most important verse we're not even going to start with the first part about wives, what you're supposed to do for your husbands. Let's go to verse 25, because this is where it starts to talk about Jesus. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church, 
for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And then notice verse 32. He says, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Huh? I thought he was talking about marriage. Yes. But he's talking about Christ and the church. That blows my mind. I was picky, very picky, choosing a bride both times. Most of you know I've been married twice. My first wife was killed in an accident 20 years ago. And both times I was very picky. The first time around, a friend of mine who happened to be from the same hometown as my first wife and my best friend accused me of being like the boy who went into the woods looking for a straight stick. And every time he found one, he said, I can find a straighter one than that. And he laid it down and went looking for another one. And Joe says, you don't watch out. You're going to get out of the woods with no stick at all. I didn't want to do that, but I was very picky. Don't you, th- don't you think the Lord is picky too? Think about it. Time and time again in Scripture, the church is described as the bride of the Lamb. We are His if we just trust Him and love Him. I was no less picky the second time around. I was on a Christian dating site for more than three years before I met Sandra. Met personally about a dozen of the pen pals that out of the hundreds I wrote to. And uh, I got the best. You know her, know that. The Lord had the chance to pick. What kind of person would he pick? (laughs) I don't get it, Lord. I just don't get it. Why would you pick us? Not because we're smart or rich or pretty or exotic in charm or noble or famous. We're his just because we trust him and love him. I think any man can relate to that, you know. All the riches, beauty, or brains in the world are worthless if your wife doesn't love you. You know, I've officiated a lot of weddings over the years. I've done several for brides who didn't seem to have much going for them. But it was obvious they loved their guys. The, the preacher has the best seat in the house at a wedding. You know, you stand up here and he gets to see the bride come in that door back there. On her father's arm or some other family member if father is not around or dead or whatever. You should see the look on the faces of some of those brides. There are no ugly brides. The look of love transforms them all. You know, afterwards Mary was killed in that accident, I used to dream I would find a lovely Christian woman who would learn how deeply I had loved Mary and would fall in love with me because she wanted to be loved like that. Of course she would be beautiful and smart and all that too, but I desperately wanted someone to love like that again. I found her, but I don't have a clue why she fell in love with me. Must be because I'm so tall, dark, and handsome. (laughs) I don't know. I'm thankful, but I don't understand it. But it's true. Christ has chosen to take as his bride all those who love him and trust him. 
That's what he wants in a bride. Love and trust, trust and love, love and trust. And then he makes us fit to be his bride by washing us in his own blood. And that's another lesson from this book of Revelation that we won't take time for now. Maybe another day. The bride is chosen. She's being readied for the big day. Now, let's go back to Esther. Do you remember how they got her ready for the king? Esther, the second chapter, verses 8 and 9 and verse 12. When the king's order and edict were proclaimed, many girls were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther was also taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charge of the harem. The, girls, the girl pleased him, meaning Esther, and won his favor. Immediately he provided her with her beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven maids selected from the king's palace and moved her and her maids into the best place in the harem. Now look at verse 12. Before a king's turn came to go into King Xerxes, before a girl's turn came to go into King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatment prescribed for the women, six months, excuse me, with oil of myrrh, and six months with perfumes and cosmetics. I've always wondered if oil of myrrh is anything like oil of Olay, but anyway, they got her ready for the king for six months. Plus six months. And God is getting us ready too. Revelation 19. Let us rejoice and be glad. And give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen bright and clean was given her to wear. And fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Remember we are not saved by our righteous acts. Jesus himself washes us clean. But if we do not live righteously, to try to act in righteousness day by day, are we really trying to get ready for the wedding? Did you ever know a bride who didn't do anything she could, everything she could to be ready for her wedding? Why then do we do so little to be ready for our ultimate wedding? Christ has not been doing little. I guarantee the wedding of the Lamb is closer every day, and the groom has been busy preparing a place for his bride. You still got your Bible? Open it to John 14. Beginning of the chapter. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. Why do we only read that at funerals? And why do we want our wedding to the Lamb to be just as far into the future as possible? What bride keeps pushing her wedding day further and further away? What would a groom think of a bride who kept putting it off, who really didn't want to talk about it or make any plans? I mean, if every time she thinks of getting married, she tries to put the thought out of her mind. And every time someone, time someone talks to her about it, she says, don't be so morbid. Don't you think sooner or later the groom would get the idea she doesn't really want to get married? What do you think our Lord thinks when we don't want to talk about the end of this life or about heaven or about going to be with him? 
Then, you know, one thing I've noticed, and don't mean to be knocking contemporary Christian music, but one thing I've noticed about much of contemporary Christian music, there are not a lot of songs about heaven or about Jesus coming. We're going to sing one a little later this morning. By the way, I asked him to. Maybe I'm only comparing it to my other two favorite forms of music, Southern Gospel and the spirituals that came out of the slavery of early years of our country, the black spirituals. There's a lot of songs about heaven in those kinds of music. And I'm a fan of just about every kind of music there is but rock. And even some rock if it's got not too hard and got good Christian words to it. But, you know, why don't we talk more about going to be with the greatest groom ever? Why are so much like the old good news, bad news joke of the guy who went to see the fortune teller? The fortune teller looked at his hand and looks at the cards and she says, I've got good news and bad news. He says, oh, what's the good news? She says, you're going to go to heaven when you die. He says, that is good news. What's the bad news? She says, they're expecting you tomorrow. <laughs> but why is that bad news? Now, I hurt for people who are left behind. I've been there. This isn't in the notes, but I'm going to throw it in anyway. A friend of mine here in town some years ago, his wife passed away from cancer. And a mutual friend told me when I went to get my hair cut that Eldon's Mary Alice had died. I knew she was ill. And my immediate reaction was, poor Eldon. Another friend looked at me when I said that, and she said, just like a man, thinking about himself. I said, no, 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 no. Mary Alice is way better off. Eldon's the one who's going to hurt. Now, I'm not saying we should be suicidal. Not at all. But we should long for heaven, and when it comes time to go, welcome it like the wedding celebration that it is. I think it would do us an eternity of good if we get used to the idea that this world is only preparation for the next. This world is not the reality with heaven the fantasy. This world is the preliminary, the practice. It's not the real deal. Did you ever go on vacation when you got home? You said to the family, so that was a nice place to live it, to visit, but I don't want to live there. Folks, I mean to tell you, this world is a nice place to visit, but I have no intention of living here forever. I don't even want to. I have an eternal bridegroom who is preparing a place for me. When I was in college and asked Mary to marry me, one of the first things I did was start hunting for a house. We had six months till the wedding, and I had very limited funds, so I had to get a real deal or we wouldn't have much of a place to live, and I didn't really want to rent at the time. The Lord blessed us, and we found a real nice little house with emphasis on little, and were able to take over a VA loan, which in those days was possible at 4%, which was a really good interest rate then. I wanted to provide the best I could, and I'm sure all you guys did too. Now, when Sandra and I got married, I already had a house to live in. It was nice and large and okay, I guess, but it had its problems, and it wasn't ours. It was just a rental. So we started looking for our house of our own. 
The Lord really blessed us. We found the most wonderful place I've ever lived. I thought I had it when I lived in Southern Illinois. I had a really nice home out in the country, but we beat it all to pieces with this one. One of the nicest I've ever seen. And those of you who visited our home know what I mean. It's not big and flashy and fancy, but I absolutely love it there. And when they carry me out of that home, it will mean I have already gone home to live in the home the Lord is preparing for us. Jesus has unlimited resources. And he's had nearly 2,000 years since he left to prepare a place. Can you imagine what it might be like? He gave, he created this world in six days and it's been going down, downhill ever since. He's been working for centuries on the new home for his bride and it will never deteriorate. can't even think about what that'll be like. When God gave John the visions that are recorded in Revelation so long ago on Patmos, he gave them a little glimpse of what he has prepared for us. Now, even if you believe that much of what is in that book is symbolic, if what John saw is only a symbol, what must the reality be like? The last two chapters of Revelation describe it, but can we even imagine streets paved with gold so pure it looks like glass? Do you know you can hammer gold down to the less than a thousandth of an inch and it's still not transparent? But the gold streets in heaven, as John describes them, are gold so pure it's, it's transparent, it's visible like crystal. Gates made out of pearl, not lots of pearls, but one big, as my boys used to say when they little great big, huge, ginormous pearl. So big it could be carved into a city gate. The tree of life, the water of life. But you know, even better picture to me is the things that will not be there. There will be no pain. Mark, you'll be out of business. Won't that be nice? There will be no death, no separation or loneliness. There will be no crying or tears. There will be no wickedness or temptation. The favorite description, my favorite description of the eternal home is comes from the writings of Peter where he says it will be a place where righteousness dwells. Folks, in more than 50 years of ministry, I've seen too much of the mess that sin makes of people's lives. Way too much. And I didn't minister ever in what you'd really call an inner city, which is way worse. I've seen the heartache, the pain, all the agonies that come, how I long for a place where righteousness dwells. How great will that be? No sin, no lies, no hatred, no bitterness, no sexual unfaithfulness, nothing evil. That would be even better than moving into a new house knowing you'll never have a roach or a spider or a mouse or even mosquitoes in the yard, never have to fix a leaky faucet or prepare or pre replace a washer and dryer that break down or add your own pet peeve about household repairs, okay? You may wonder what it will really be like. One thing I know for sure, 
the one who made all we enjoy here will not shortchange us there. Sometimes when I look at the place where I live now, I think stuff men have built in this life can be nice. But you know what's the nicest about our house? It's the location, the part that God made overlooking that little creek in there in the woods. People come out to my place, and before they ever come in the door, I say, man, this is nice. I just live in the woods overlooking a creek, that's all. But God made that beauty. Can you imagine what it will be like when he's done making the new heavens and new earth? I just hope I'm allowed to cut down a few trees to build stuff. <laughs> but I know he's not going to shortchange us. And the greatest thing will be that we will be with the Lord. I love the story of the little boy who was asked what he thought heaven would be like. And he thought for a minute and he says, I think God will take me on his knee at breakfast and give me a bite of his egg. How neat is that? But isn't that what marriage is all about? Togetherness? Two people get married so they can be together and share everything. It takes us a lifetime to learn to do it right, but still, that's what we're shooting for. God has chosen the church as his bride. Jesus died for us to save us so that we might be together, to love one another forever. Now, I don't know about you, but the more I study Scripture, the more I get to know of the Lord Jesus, the more I think how marvelous it will be just to be with him even if it will be with an uncountable multitude, somehow I think it might feel like just Jesus and me. One of my favorite songs on a record I've had for a long time is by a group called the Melody Four, the men's quartet of cars. That's what all my favorite stuff is just about. It's to be with him will crown it all, to feast with him within his banquet hall, to be with him will crown it all. Now, isn't it exciting to think about? The bride is chosen. The house is ready. The wedding day is coming. Maybe today. The great day is coming. It may be today when that great multitude in heaven will begin to shout like the roar of a thousand Niagara's or a million springs thunderstorms all at once. Hallelujah! Our Lord God Almighty reigns. The wedding of the Lamb has come. The bride is ready. Are we? Are we ready for that? You see, it is so easy to not be ready. It's been a long time since Jesus went back to the Father. Sometimes it all seems so unreal, so we forget to stay ready. You remember the story Jesus told about the ten bridesmaids who went out to watch for the bridegroom? I'll just summarize it. Go back home when you go home and read it in Matthew 25, read the whole story. But according to the customs of the time, a couple would become engaged with formal ceremony. And then the groom would begin to prepare a home for his bride, usually in the extended family compound of his father. When the home was finished, the groom's family would contact the family of the bride and set a date for the feast to begin. And the feast usually lasted about a week. And it began by the groom with his friends leaving the home he had prepared and going to the home of the bride and her friends who were gathered for that day 
to pick her up and escort them all back to the groom's father's home where the feast would start and last usually for a week. Well, in this particular story, the groom and his friends get stalled somewhere along the way, so they're later arriving than they expected to be, and some of the bride's friends have gone out onto the road to watch for them and have taken their little oil lamps to light the way back to the bride's home and then procession, excuse me, guided by the lamps, will go marching, dancing through the street to the groom's home. But in this case, the bachelor party, if that's what it was, and I hope without the excesses of modern bachelor parties, gets slowed down on the street somewhere, and the gals who are waiting for the men to arrive to escort them and the bride back to the feast go to sleep. I don't know, do women snore? Of course not. You ask any of them, they'll tell you they don't. <clears throat> and then they hear the men coming. And everybody's lamp has gone out. Well, no, not everybody's. Half of them's lamps have gone out. They've run out of oil. The others have a little extra oil bottle and they refill because theirs are smoldering too. Well, you know what the point of the story is? You've got to be ready when the groom comes because you don't know when it's going to be. Will we be ready? That's Jesus' point in the story. Someone said, it's not the first mile of the journey that's hard, nor the last, when you can see the end. It's the long haul in between that puts you to the test. Nowhere is that more true than in the Christian life. When we first come to know the Lord, we're all excited. Nothing can hold us back. And if we could see and know which is the last mile, we'd run with renewed energy. But there's no white flag indicating the last lap. And it's the not knowing that kills us. But you know something? It's the not knowing, but still hanging in there, that separates the bride from the foolish bridemaids, bridesmaids. The long haul shows who really loves Jesus and who just wants to save their own skins. It's as simple as that. Jesus wants as his bride those who truly love and trust him. The bride of the lamb must be fully in love with the lamb, not with herself. The first thing you have to do to get ready for the wedding is what? Say yes to the proposal. But it must be a yes of love and trust. In love with the Lamb enough to want to please Him every day. In love enough with the Lamb to look at no other suitor. Trusting and loving the Lamb enough to try to do whatever He wants us to do. In love enough with the Lamb to always be ready for the wedding day. Think about it this way. The prince has gone off to war. To fight the forces of evil and secure the borders of his kingdom. Just as soon as I return, he promised, we'll get married. So we, the bride, sit at our balcony window or go about our daily tasks with our bridal gown close at hand 
and our eyes on the road. We don't know when he will come back, whether today or tomorrow or next year. But when he finally comes with a shout of victory, I hope some angel riding beside him will look at my face and see there the wide-eyed look of wonder and a silly lopsided grin, the look of love, expectation, and thrilling at last, that is the look of a bride. When he looks at you, will he see it on your face too? Will he see it on mine? Will we be ready for that? Okay, we had another piece of music to play for you. Is that wedding music I hear? The bride's adorned and ready to appear. Is that wedding music I hear? Listen carefully. You may hear wedding music. <laughs> <laughs> 